Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Prasad. I'm a consultant psychiatrist and I'm based in private practice in Harvey Street, London. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Joan Rutherford. Uh, Joan Rutherford is the chief medical member with the Mental Health Tribunal. And this is a national role throughout England with an office base at the Royal Courts of Justice. So, Joan, first of all, what is the chief medical member of the Mental Health Tribunal? Well, uh, it's a management role which combines the role equivalent to that of a medical director. There are 430 medical members um, with the Mental Health Tribunal. They're all consultant psychiatrists, as I am, and they sit on hearings. So in order to have a management role of recruitment and training, induction training, ongoing training and mentoring, I was given this title. I, I'm the first post holder of it. So first of all, it was very much finding a way into what the management role would really look like. And it has developed. I'm much more involved in appraisal and performance issues, for instance, than I was when I was first appointed. So what is a, a mental health tribunal? It's a panel of three people that uh, we, we travel to the hospital where the patient is detained because our role is to look at the really whether the, the patient in hospital still needs to be on section. So we um, go to hospitals and review the detentions of people on section two, section three, what's called restricted um, patients where they are under the care of the forensic units. But th the three panel members are a judge who chairs the panel, a medical member who is the consultant psychiatrist, and a third member called a specialist lay member, who is someone who knows a lot mainly about community care. So this person may be a social worker, a community nurse, a psychologist. There's quite a variety of people can be that specialist lay member. And we spend half a day on each hearing so that in a day we might go to one hospital in the morning and hear one case and then travel to a second hospital in the afternoon for a second case. The patient comes to the hearing, they sit opposite the judge. They're supported by a solicitor um, and this is a solicitor with particular qualifications in mental health law that is provided free to the patient from legal aid. And we also hear evidence from the hospital. So we hear from the patient's doctor called the responsible clinician. That's the consultant or an, another doctor. And we hear from the patient's nurse. And we hear from the community person linked with that patient. So it may be someone called a care coordinator. It may be someone from a home treatment team. And we hear the evidence. Now, it's not for the patient to prove that basically they're sane. Um, it's for the hospital to prove why that person should still be on section because being on section takes away a lot of the patient rights. They can't leave the hospital when they want. Sometimes they have to take medication they don't want against their will. Um, they, the, even just going outside is restricted depending on whether or not someone has leave. So it's, it's a serious task. 
we hear the evidence, we give a decision usually at the time, and then a written decision, so an account of the hearing, is written up afterwards by the judge, specialist lay member and the medical member contribute, and then that decision is sent to the hospital and to the patient's representative. So the patient has actually the whole written reasons why they are still being detained. And if they've been discharged, there is the written decision on why they were discharged, why it was the tribunal thought that they would be discharged um, when the hospital clearly was saying, usually say, no, this patient shouldn't be discharged. So the Mental Health Tribunal is part of the legislation surrounding the Mental Health Act. And this legislation um, empowers doctors um, and social workers and hospitals in certain extreme situations to take away people's liberty on the grounds that they're suffering from such a serious mental illness that they could be a danger to themselves or other people or um, their health would deteriorate in a, some serious manner if uh, they, they were not detained against their will. Is that, roughly speaking, the link between the, the tribunal system and, and the Mental Health Act, the legislation that the tribunal is there to, to hear when a hospital is uh, re reviewing or, or the legislation requires a review of should the patient continue to be detained? Yes, that's exactly right, Raj. We, what we do is we, we go through what's called the statutory criteria, which means um, does the patient have a disorder? What is the nature of the patient's disorder, whether it's an ongoing, um, we usually use the term relapsing and remitting, whether the patient's deg the degree of the disorder at that moment is sufficient to warrant detention. That means that usually the patient's current symptoms um, we look at whether there's the assessment is still ongoing on a section two. That's when someone's detained for up to 28 days. And for the longer section, section three, we look carefully at the appropriate treatment um, that's to be offered for that patient for their disorder. And then again, we look at, as you said, the risks. If the person was discharged from hospital now, the risks to their health, the risk to their safety, including whether they're vulnerable from other people because of their illness, and then the risks uh, to others. So another point uh, I think that often is difficult for people to get, get a, their, their head around is the fact that the tribunal is independent. It's independent of uh, the hospital. It's independent of the doctor who may have detained that patient in the first place. And it's independent um, of the patient. It's meant to be independent of all these different vested interests or parties uh, in place. So it's a judicial process where the panel is sitting to hear the evidence one way or the other and independently which is a conclusion. That independence point seems to be quite important. Any thoughts about that? Yes, it, it is. It, it is very important. I, you know, I was for many years a consultant, so sitting on the opposite side, so actually treating patients. And I those times, and even so now, sort of put myself in the patient's position and think, well, if I were detained, what would be the safeguards to ensure that you know, I was being detained for treatment of, of a mental disorder. I mightn't agree that I had a mental disorder. So the independence of the tribunal is um, 
very important um, about that. I think the other important thing about the tribunal is that the patient is assisted, providing they want that assistance, by a legal representative. Um, because the, the, the issue about the tribunal is it is independent, but as you said, it's judicial. The language is judicial. It's um, court language. Um, so it, patients really should have someone to help them um, really through that, the whole process. Now, um, do, do these things happen because the patient requests it or do, or do they happen by law? Is there a certain period of time that has to go by when one has to have a tribunal to review what's going on with a patient detained against their, their will in hospital under the Mental Health Act? Well, there are, there, are, there are two ways that a patient will qualify for a tribunal. One is if they make an application and um, a, a patient gets the right of appeal during each period of detention. So someone um, detained on a section two for up to 28 days will have a right of appeal and the same for anyone detained on section three. If they don't appeal, there is an automatic, what's called a referral to the tribunal to ensure justice is done, that that person's case is reviewed. Um, the referrals of the tribunal um, count for about 10% of our workload. So most of the workload, um, most of the tribunal's hearings are when patients have appealed and made it very clear, I do not feel I need to be detained in hospital. So a lot of what we've just discussed will be very familiar to many psychiatrists and doctors um, listening, and they may be wondering why we're running over that, but we're running over it also because there are some dramatic changes that are occurring because of the viral pandemic. So first of all, before we get into the actual changes, why, why was a review taken that the whole process needed to change in response to the epidemic we're currently in? The One of the main drivers was about the the um, tribunal's workload and I'm, I'm not just thinking about the mental health tribunal but all the HMCTS the courts system crown court um, special educational needs many many of the courts back in March um, when the idea of a lockdown was just being mooted our booking team in Leicester where all the tribunal applications or referrals are processed and there's 32,000 each year so it's a huge uh, amount of email and paperwork to process. Um, from the mental health tribunal it's a huge open plan office with people working at desktops next to and opposite each other. There's maybe about 100 people in that room. Um, so not only were our booking team um, affected by the infections, the need to self-isolate, and then the lockdown rules. Um, but th at that stage, the tribunal was still dependent upon this big office. Um, there weren't laptops for people to work from home. Uh, there weren't mobile phones. Everything was very much office-based. So one, one of the practical things was about the workload. Um, really, the second issue is more to do with the idea, like I've said, about tribunal panel members going to hospitals. About a third of our workload is the Section 2 applications. 
and they have a short window in which to be listed, which means that we go possibly 10 hospitals in a week so that, you know, tribunal members aren't always in the same panel um, so that the, the three different people could form each day um, to get through these um, thousands of applications. So not only was it the booking team, but it was the illness and self-isolation of the tribunal members. We didn't want to contribute to the pandemic by going from hospital to hospital. And one of the things I forgot to say earlier was that medical members carry out a pre-hearing examination of the patient, which means that we go onto the ward, hospital to hospital, seeing the patients, and that was thought to be a risk. Um, so it, it was one of the reasons that there needed to be what's called a practice direction. It's called a pilot practice direction because it is designed to change the system in a short, it, really over the um, COVID emergency. And, and what is the direction? What, what are the changes that are going to happen? Well, there are five changes. Um, so all the hearings are now proceeding remotely, either by phone or video, so members aren't going into the hospitals. The cases that were already listed, because um, they had been processed before the pilot practice direction, um, because this was on the 16th of March, they're, they're going ahead with three people um, phoning or by video. Any of the new cases are being heard by just a judge alone. The judge can call a specialist lay member or a medical member for advice. And there are no pre-hearing examinations, the meeting that the doctor had with the patient. And I, I suppose the other aspect is that I've talked about the patient's representative. So they may not be actually at the hospital either. They may be also um, dialing in uh, to the hearing um, and doing their work at that in that way. So it's it's a, it's a big change for many legal members to sit alone is a different way of working. So uh, I just want to be absolutely clear. So the constitution of the tribunal, in terms of the three people you mentioned, that that is also changing then. Yes. Yes. So, so only the, one person is hearing the case. Yes. Yes, and the, the practice direction, it's um, what's called a supplementary protocol. Um, it regulates um, procedures. It, it's, it, it's the court laying down rules as to how it should function. Um, and so the composition arrangements for a case altered in what they would have been. Um, the medical, the uh, mental health tribunal says that the tribunal may seek the advice of one or more non-legal members to assist with its decision making, um, providing the advice is disclosed to the parties. So th really, that's that's um, what we're doing. The intention always is to revert back to the three person panel when the resource, the listing resource allows it. But another key problem seems to me is the fact there is no medical examination anymore. The, the the doctor that was one of the three members was meant to examine the patient themselves, the independent doctor, and, and form a view uh, that they reported back to the tribunal. So it's quite a serious change, isn't it? From, from people might be arguing from a human rights or legal rights standpoint, uh, that, that fact that that's been dropped as well. 
Yes, the the pre-hearing examination, that's Rule 34 of the Tribunal Rules, that has changed within the past four years in, in any case. It used to be that it was uh, carried out in all uh, cases for all sections. Now, that only happens now in Wales. And what the uh, Tribunal in England did was say that the patients on Section 2 would have the pre-hearing examination. Um, but for all other patients, it would be their choice, actually their representative's choice, whether they had the pre-hearing examination. And I, I know there are different views um, about the pre-hearing examination. Some patients find it helpful to meet a panel member before the hearing. They come into the room and they, they recognise someone. Um, and, and other patients want not to have that private talk. They want anything that they say to the panel to be said with their representative uh, in the room. Okay, but uh, let's talk a little bit about the um, the conduct of the tribunal, though, because it's been done electronically. So um, the judge is, is via a phone or via um, a, a computer um, in contact with the hospital. But but um, at the at the hospital end, how is that done in terms of the contact? So the, the patient and their doctor and nurse and their representative are all in the same room together. Tell us a bit more about that bit. It's it's very variable. Um, and some of it is actually depending on whether hospitals have the IT equipment. Um, the, the From the tribunal's point of view, there is a view that, that video hearings are probably better in that the patient can see who is making the uh, decision about them and the judge and panel members um, can see whether their patient is becoming agitated and distressed and how they're responding to hearing the evidence that they do hear, which is often um, against them. So often now, the care coordinators, because of the pressure of community work and the COVID uh, guidance, are not coming into the hospital. So the care coordinator is often um, available by phone. Um, the doctor may or may not be present. Again, it depends on uh, who it is and whether the doctor is also working remotely and not attending the wards on a regular basis. And then the patient and the nurse will definitely be there. And the patient's representative is probably not there now um, because, again, there are restrictions on who can come in and out of a ward. Uh, but they would have spoken with the patient and given advice and they will be there. So it is a very different um, way of working. OK, so I'm going to ask you a very tough question, which may lead you to run screaming from the room. But um, some well, one of the things that's happening with the whole lockdown thing is people having to think through the, the classic statement is, is the cure uh, worse than the disease? And, and, and the, what we're discussing is one of the impacts of the lockdown, which is, um, the impact on the on the system whereby uh, patients' um, rights are protected when they're detained against their will. Um, so um, do, do you think there's a sense in which, although you're doing your best, I suspect, to try and compensate for all the differences, do, do you think there's a sense in which the, the, the patient isn't going to get as good a service um, in terms of having their rights respected or, or, the, or their case listened to um, as uh, was the case before the lockdown? I appreciate that's a tough question. 
Yeah. I think before I ask that, could I could I just digress a moment into what we in the tribunal have been told about the current clinical pressures, really, to put it in context, because I think at the moment, uh, to be an inpatient, um, trusts have been asked to close wards, um, close beds, um, move patient from ward to ward, depending on whether there is COVID infection. Um, The ability of community teams to follow up um, community patients is um, difficult and it's it's certain that social support and accommodation is limited. Many hostels and care homes, for instance, have closed to new residents. And in those circumstances, the, the patient having some leave from the hospital, escorted by a nurse, um, so it's Section 17 leave, or going freely on unescorted leave, is really not happening apart from hospitals that have grounds um, in which the patients can go out just for a breath of air. Um, and the, the tribunal um, have been told that any patient who really could be discharged back to their accommodation has been. So I think that patients who remain uh, are likely to be more disturbed. Um, They may have more problems taking medication and um, accepting the follow-up, and they may be vulnerable. Um, So I think it's a very different clinical landscape than it was a couple of months ago. So what we're trying to do is preserve as much as we can about patient rights. And so actually um, going ahead with hearings as much as we can and prioritising the Section 2 hearings where someone may be admitted for the first time and therefore they have an early right of appeal to the tribunal. They uh, they appeal within the first 14 days of their admission. And I think we're, we are right to prioritise that group of patients. Um, so it is an early access to justice. It's a timely access to justice. One of our concerns is that the only way that we could do this early access to justice was to have a judge alone um, because it really it isn't possible with the resources from the from the the system to get three people um, onto a panel so we are doing our best but it sounds like you're quite concerned for psychiatric patients at at this moment in time i i am concerned i think that that to, to be on a hospital ward, I mean, um, a nurse described one to me at a, a hearing, and I'm going back about three weeks ago now, as saying that the ward was like a tinderbox. Um, you had uh, patients who were not um, getting leave, where accommodation and, and their future was more uncertain than it would be. And I think it is, it, it is a very difficult and a, a really stressful environment. And what could be done to help with that within the constraints of the lockdown? Or do you think everything that can can be done is being done? I think that um, clinicians are having to make a really difficult choice. They either accelerate the patient's discharge 
and say, for this person, I can't give them the testing out of leave that I would otherwise do. They can't go down to the local shop and come back. They can't go for an overnight leave to home. The the choice facing clinicians, it seems to me at the moment, is you either uh, kind of have to bite the bullet and say, right, um, I think this person is well enough to go now, um, and off they go. Or alternatively, there is the delayed discharge where um, clinicians say, well, I'm not certain that this person can have a uh, the depot injection in um, the community because they may not be in when a nurse visits. They may not be willing to go back to the hospital ward to have it. So I, uh, I think that is the tension. Um, if I were practicing clinically, I'm not sure which way um, I would go. Would would I be someone who was saying, well, I shall cross my fingers and, and let you go? Or would I be saying, no, I think you'd be safer to stay in despite this ward's difficult environment. And I know you're not even able to go out for a, for a breath of fresh air, can't leave the grounds for a cigarette. You know, all the things that, that people can take for granted, but they can't do now. Okay, so I want to go back to the back office problem, which you mentioned right at the beginning, which in a way would come as a big surprise to many people who wouldn't think that through. Um, what's happening on that front? In other words, this office in Leicester, this large open plan office, which the mental health re- tribunal system is run from, um, was hampered dramatically so by the by the pandemic and the lockdown and the isolation um, rules. So tell us a bit more about what's happening there. Um, we have had delivered... Um, Ministry of Justice laptops uh, for security. People are working from home. Um, they have um, secure mobile phones so they can um, carry out the um, all, all the, the listing work, sending reports out. At the worst, we had 30% of the workload and it's now moved back between 50 and 60%. So I think that because of that, um, we think in the mental health tribunal that 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 was the worst crisis when there were so few people that we couldn't really do things. Now we're moving on because we're able to move on to video hearings and coming out of the crisis will actually be listing again with three panel members um, in order to at least once again provide a um, the specialist advice to the judge at the time rather than the judge phoning for advice which many judges are and they're phoning for advice before the hearing because they have particular questions about that um I, we're certainly getting many uh, more questions about particular panels so for instance um cams child and adolescent um uh, patients 18 years and under um, that's an area where we usually have a specialist panel member and for those the judges are either specialist cams members or phoning for advice and then of course the forensic patients the restricted panels they are continuing to be done by the level of judge um, who has experience of either criminal court or restricted work so there is still the level of specialism that there has always been so because of this back office problem um, and the delivery uh, of these com- computers and, and phones are, are arriving now um, has there been um, a delay 
in terms of people having a hearing, um, the, the tribunal listening to their appeal against the section of the Mental Health Act they're on? No delay to the Section 2, um, because uh, they they have always been regarded as the priority um, for, for timely and, and speedy justice. The the um, if you like the backup backlog, I think I would I would say is the references. That is when the patient has not asked for a hearing, um, but they've been automatically given one because that is the legislation. Um, and the what the the tribunal was trying to weigh up what we call Rule Two, the interests of justice with the clinical pressure. And to to decide if it's going to take three hours um, of a clinician's time to give evidence to a tribunal, a certain amount of time to write the report and a certain amount of time to be present at the hearing, was it was it fair for everyone um, for that to be done for references at the point of the point of maximum crisis and the decision was no not then um but now of course we're always moving and you know coming out of crisis the idea is well those are the people who aren't asking for a tribunal perhaps they now um become the priority because they haven't asked uh, for their detention to be reviewed so we're re we're really balancing quite a number of things now section two for speedy justice and the people who haven't asked um, but who are nevertheless their tribunal is justified so one of the key things that tribunals do is they balance the rights of the patient the, the right not to be detained even though you might be unwell um, people have human rights and, and mm -hmm. rights to freedom with the rights of society um, sometimes a person's unwell um, much more rarely than maybe the tabloid press will lead you to believe and they may be a danger to themselves or other people um, and the kind of cases where the tribunal tends to hit the headlines is when they've let someone out of the hospital and then that person has gone and attacked someone on the street and and um, something terrible has happened as a result. Um, on the other hand, what you don't hear about is if someone really should have been released but never got released as much as, as quickly as they should have done because maybe the tribunal or, or the hospital were, were overly concerned. So there's this constant balancing that's going on. Um, in terms of that key function, and I appreciate this is a difficult question, um, what's happening at that point in terms of do you think uh, public safety is still being um, maintained uh, by the tribunal system given the pressures that it's now under? for example, and also the rights of the patients are being balanced against that. Yes. I come back to the statutory criteria, the legal framework on which the Mental Health Tribunal is, is based. And if we, if we ensure, as we do at a hearing, that we look at about the patient's disorder, their treatment, their assessment, then the risk to their health, safety and the protection of of others. The evidence base that, that we require hasn't changed. We're still um, looking at the same evidence, no matter, I suppose, um, really what the emergency is. The, the law remains the law. Uh, rule two, the interests of justice um, remains there. I think I'm coming back to something that, that I said a while ago. 
I think the the difficulty at the, actually at the moment is suppose the patient is ready for discharge, but the hostel, say it's the forensic hostel that they were to go or the care home or their accommodation can't accept them because after all, many hostels at the moment are still closed to, to new residents. You've potentially got some people who are remaining in hospital where they potentially could be discharged. Um, I don't know if that helps to answer your question, Raj. I, I'm not sure I've hit hit the nail on the head with that one. Well, no, no, I, no, I, I think you've done your best. <laughs> it was a very difficult question. Um, but really, this is about the fact that um, it's not so illuminated and won't be in the press so much Um uh, unlike the, let's say the death rate from the viruses, but the, there are impacts elsewhere in terms of people suffering in hospitals as a result of this. And, and you've you've signposted that point, I think. Uh, well, um, is there anything else you wanted to say about the the, the process uh, before we think about closing? I suppose what I would say to a clinical team who are managing a patient and they have a tribunal hearing um, coming up. Um, what's the way to be fair to the patient? And I would say that if it's a, a section two, that's the hearing for someone detained up to 28 days, um, get the reports to the tribunal and to the patient's representative the day before the hearing, and then the, the representative gets a chance to discuss with the patient and give them a little um, thinking time. If the clinical team think the patient's going to be agitated they'll have difficulty coping with the hearing um, advise uh, advise the judge and the panel members that um, you don't often we we when we're there we can see if someone's getting so agitated that they can't stay and listen um, and we want them to have their say so I would say you know either the patient says or the representative says or the clinical team says um, I think Mr B should should go first. I think we need to know whether it's possible for the patient to stay as a voluntary patient um, because uh, some trusts are not able to do that. They have cut their beds um, as required um, back so that there, there isn't what they might think of as, as the possibility of the patient staying as a voluntary patient. And, and also we know that the patients are moving from ward to ward um, because wards are closing or some wards are um, COVID positive. So the clinical team don't know the patient as well as they would have done otherwise. And the patient doesn't know the clinical team as well. So I think that is more um, that is more difficult. And then finally, I, I, I think that follow up arrangements are more difficult and I think sometimes perhaps it's fairer to the patient and to the community team if there is a request for a delayed discharge. So someone is deemed that they don't need to be in hospital at the moment, but there needs to be one or two days to actually confirm the follow-up ar uh, arrangements um, for them to be able to go um, safely. Well, Dr. Joan Rutherford, thank you very much indeed uh, for talking to us. And there's more information about this on the Royal College of Psychiatrists website. Thank you, Joan. Thank you.